that came up as you're talking there is it sounds like most, uh, you could obviously correct me at any point if I'm incorrect, it sounds like most back injuries are, are repetitive strain, repetitive trauma, you do the same thing over and over and over again. Would that make an argument then for um, training with isometrics as far as like my goal is to accumulate strength in certain, you know, length, length tension relationships with specific muscles? Well, the answer is yes and no, but it needs a context. Sure. So if we were to take a, a jujitsu master, folks are aware of what that is now because of MMA. The, you know, if you take Gracie jujitsu, for example, uh, basically you require your spine to become a boa constrictor in athleticism. Some people, if you're, if you're a real gracing practitioner, you don't put a lot of force into that. In fact, if you're going for a move that requires a lot of force in a highly deviated position, they will abandon the approach, set up the next submission attempt and try for that. So not require high strength. When you take a highly deviated spine and then put high strength through it, you've, you've really created a stress concentration on the uh, disc and uh, you'll get into trouble. So it's, it's uh, sport specific and it's technique specific. You cannot do isometrics if you're a Gracie uh, Jiu Jitsu elite practitioner because the stress strain reversals on the collagen fibers will slowly delaminate them. Even without movement? Oh no, I'm talking about if they are practicing jujitsu. It wouldn't be a good preparation to do isometrics for a jujitsu player, but my point in all of that is don't use heavy load. You can use the motion, but not the load. Uh, I'm, I'm going to regress one level. In terms of disc injury, what causes cumulative uh, injury is power, force times velocity. So a golfer, a jiu-jitsu practitioner has a lot of velocity, a lot of motion. Keep the force low. If you're a power lifter or a bodybuilder with high force, keep the motions low. So you can do uh, spine isometrics and high volume, heavy, repeated loading. But you know, I know who I'm talking to here, which you are, are uh, rowing, etc. You get the range of motion in the spinal muscles through clever technique using the ball and socket joints to get the range of motion you need out of the muscles. But if you start doing that with the spine over and over again, there will be some people who are touched by the hand of God and they'll get away with it. Most of us will not. So limb muscles, of course, right? It's full dynamic eccentric concentrics. I've been lucky to uh, measure, in fact, probably the only scientist in the world who's uh, had the privilege of measuring, you know, world's strongest man competitors, top bodybuilders, uh, world record uh, powerlifters. And, and how do they train? When I think of the man who has the strongest core, and rotational spine that I've ever measured. Do you think he does a lot of full range of motion side to side? No. He will stop, twist. In other words, his landmine exercise, you know, where some people, they freeze their hips and take their spine through the range of motion. They're not the strongest. The strongest are the ones who can lock this in and then spin through their feet and through their hips. Right. In other words, they are stopping motion. But then when you compete with them, if they were to take an arm drag or an underhook or Greco-Roman wrestling or judo moves, 
they lock this empower work with the hips. Yeah. I don't care what athletics we're talking about. A good hip beats a spine any day of the week. And the great ones, when you measure them, are really hip dominant. The second best layers are spine uh, centric. The hip powder going into an isometric spine that produces ungodly performance. That makes sense. You said measure. What are we measuring? Tissue stress distributions through their spine because injuries occur where the stress concentrations are the highest. So I'm measuring that. I'm measuring three-dimensional spine motion. I'm measuring through EMG muscle contraction levels. And then with the reconstruction of their skeleton 3D motions, I get to know uh, force length force length relationships, uh, force velocity relationships, etc. Uh, we, not always, because it's a very computational intense exercise, but we will measure spine stability uh, as well. Or we have done, I'm retired now, but that's where we, we left our uh, career. One of the nice experiments that I did just before I left the university was watching spines move under fluoroscopy. So you, uh, it was actually with whiplash people, but I'm going to give it a bodybuilding context. You will see symptoms of whiplash. They are really being accused by the medical system of faking it. They, it's been a year or two since right. I said whiplash now. And the medics might say, or the insurance uh, companies will say, oh, well, the injury is lasting longer than three months or 12 weeks, whatever the statute is. You must be a pain magnifier. You're a faker. Can you imagine how psychologically devastating that is when someone who truly has disabling pain and then someone says it's in their head? Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's just a travesty. We took people, they had normal MRI images, but an MRI image is a static picture. It doesn't show you the mechanics of pain. Uh, and then we would take the person through the range of motion, watching their spine with real-time moving x-ray. So it creates a video. You see all the bones. And then they will move and, uh, and then they, they can move a little bit further. At the time of that pain shot, the vertebra move and rotate and then you get an instability clunk like that. Right. And uh, it's associated one-to-one -one with their pain. In other words, they're not faking. We now have a technology that shows the disruption of mechanics. And when the center of rotation leaves the joint with the clunk, the center of rotation at the instant of clunk will be down here, yeah. that uh, shows aberrant mechanics and uh, the instability. So now... We take that into our uh, discussion we had uh, before. When I'm involved with athletes who are big, strong, and heavy, when they lose weight, all of a sudden their joints go painful. So I'm w working with a current uh, Mr. Olympia competitor uh, at the moment. Another thing that we're measuring are the mechanics of muscle hypertrophy and what they do with joints. So if I can double the moment arm of the muscle through hypertrophy, I now create double the torque. Mm -hmm. More for the same load, I half the load on the joint because the muscle spans the joint. So if I was to do an arm curl, the, the, the five pounds or five kilo or whatever it is in my hand uh, is moved by this muscle that has one fifteenth of the moment arm. Right. I need 75 pounds of 
force in the bicep to lift five pounds here. Well, you could, I could curl 50 pounds walk in the park. 750 pounds in that muscle, but the architecture of the muscle now spans the joint. The joint is being compressed. 750 pounds for me to lift 50. Well, think of what's going on in the back. Someone's deadlifting a thousand. So you can pick up a uh, hundred kilo with half the load on your spine than I would being half the mechanical advantage. Right. So muscle hypertrophy unloads the joints, but here we're playing a game of trade-offs. Some people will say, okay, well, I'll just grow my muscles now and unload my joints. We'll hold on the trauma and the mileage you put on the joints to get the muscle bulk is a, is an entirely different other side of the equation. But going back to, we have uh, large men and women now, and, and really were relatively joint pain-free while they were training. Now, getting back to civilian life, they've lost the mass and how their joints ache. And they say, what's going on? Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to do this to become less painful and, and more healthy. You've decreased the mechanical advantage of the muscles. So the instability in the joints now, the ligaments are a bit lax, the discs have a, a few miles on them, they're a bit loose, but the muscle bulk and, and their mechanical advantage stiffened the joints very effectively. So then when they lose mass, now the micro movements are starting to appear uncontrolled. And it's the micro movements it usually in shear that triggers the pain. Think of a knee now with an ACL deficiency. You do a drawer test to measure the shear. As these big jacks decrease their mechanical advantage, their ability to stiffen and control the micro movements decreases now. They start to ache. So I don't know if you can relate to that or not. <laughs> <laughs> Talk in my language. It's true. And it's absolutely true. And, and as you said, I was completely anticipating you know, losing all this this literal load on my skeletal system, on my muscular system. I was like, I'm going to feel so much better. And it's significantly worse. And I was saying to you, like, if I don't get to train three times a week, I feel terrible. My body feels like it's like, I'm like waking up in the morning like the Tin Man. I'm like, I got I to gotta move. But if I train, I feel like a newborn baby. I can run, I can jump, I can play. If I don't, I literally feel like my body's like, contracting to hold itself together? The first one is once you start training and as dedicated as you and your colleagues were, it's almost a little bit of a deal with the devil in that you're committed to maintain a little bit of it now, even after you're, you're retired. Because of the mileage on the joints, you're going to need a little bit more help and assistance from the muscles. Makes sense. So, from yep. mechanical advantage and that three-dimensional mm -hmm. stiffness, enhancing joint integrity. The second part of it, though, is life follows stages in terms of our bodies. As you get mileage on a joint or literal damage to a joint, micro damage, it becomes unstable. It loses stiffness. That is the definition of instability. You push it and you get a little bit of a micro movement. Over time though, you'll find, and, and I uh, lifted far heavier than I ought to have when I was younger. And uh, as I lost weight, I, 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 I did become 
more micro movement unstable. But I'm 66 now. I've gone into the third stage, which is stiffness. The bad news is I've become a bit stiffer. Uh, the good news is all my pain is gone. So my prediction for you is you will graduate to this third stage. You're you're right now in a, in a unstable phase. You will go right back into a stable phase once again as the joints get a bit grumpy. I'm going to suggest don't do yoga and bending on your spine. Let it be. You know, your hips and knees are good. Use them, and uh, I think you'll retire a much happier man. It's possible to train to the level that I did without deteriorating your joints, like even if your mechanics were flawless? I'm not qualified to talk about all of the other joints except the spine. Yeah. There is the very odd bodybuilder where I would say that's that's genetic anomalies yeah oh yeah well you're freaks so i hate to say it <laughs> <laughs> let me put it by the well, you were blessed by god yeah. let's put it that way but no for the uh vast majority uh you will have a few things to deal with uh with your back i i don't know too many who've gotten away with it uh, i should i should just back up a little bit here ben what we do in life are managed biological tipping points. So let's just take vitamin D. Hmm. If you're vitamin D deficient, you're under the tipping point. If so, you're at a, you're in ill health. If you vitamin D supplement, you enhance your health, but only up to the tipping point. Any more vitamin D, in addition to that, crosses the tipping point and becomes a poison. So think of everything in life has this tipping point. All physical loading uh, follows exactly the same tipping point, but there's magnitude, there's duration, there's repetition, there's rest, there's food. There's all of these variables that modulate where that tipping point is. Maybe you were really good and you engineered and controlled all of those variables to stay just on the anabolic side of the tipping point and you've built great resilience. And I can name a few very strong men who, who've really done well. It's not majority. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Organifi. I have an amazing offer for you right now that what they're calling the Sunrise to Sunset Kit, which is everything that I advocate, the green, the red, and the gold, plus free 30 count travel packs um, with every purchase. So if you head over to Organifi.com slash muscle, you're going to get hooked up with 20% off. This is a product that I continue to use every day. And the gold for me, if you're someone who has a sweet tooth, um, which I don't often, but sometimes I do, is a really nice way to end your day, like post-dinner snack instead of a high sugary um, dessert. This is a delicious way to do something good for yourself and ultimately feel good in the process and help yourself have a better relaxing night and a great sleep. Um, the, the green specifically is something that I never go without. We use it every day, loaded with some incredible organic uh, superfoods and adaptogenic herbs to kick off your day. So head over to Organifi.com slash muscle and take advantage of this incredible offer with their sunrise to sunset hit. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bioptimizers. 
Optimizer is our longest standing sponsor of the podcast, and that's because their products work. I believe in them, and you believe in them as our customers and our uh, listeners ultimately, and they keep showing up for us. We want to show up for them. So if you're not already using magnesium, if you're not already using mass zymes, if you're not already using Capex, if you're not already using their amazing nootropic products, head over to bioptimizers.com. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M. I-Z-E-R-S, bioptimizers.com, and use the code MUSCLE10 to get hooked up with 10% off. These are just truly incredible products, and the thing I love about them is they're foundational. They're things that everyone can use and everyone can benefit from. Um, the magnesium is the best. The, the mass enzymes are, are non-negotiables for me. They are always in my medicine cabinet. And they've got this incredible array of uh, very, very useful products that are really well formulated. And I've actually been diving into the nootropics a little bit more recently. Um, you know, obviously how we show up mentally is a big, big advantage or potentially disadvantage in your life. And I'm really loving some of their custom nootropics. Uh, head over to bioptimizers.com. Use the code MUSCLE10. Talk to you about tolerance, Greg, because, you know, hearing you speak, it, it makes sense to me. You go, okay, I, I've physically exceeded my tolerance of this individual muscle or this group of muscles. And, and therefore their communication with the nervous system is downregulated either through, through inflammation or the nervous system just says, hey, the brain says, hey, turn this thing off. What percentage of this is in your experience is physical and what percentage is chemical? Because obviously when we're talking about inflammation, there's this whole consideration around like, what did you eat? And what did you put in your body? Did you drink alcohol? Did you take pharmaceuticals? Like that's a whole side of the conversation. So I'm curious in your experience, if, if those things tend to play into the way you think about it. Yeah, it, all, it, it, it does all tie together. And uh, one of the things that I've seen over the years is as the, uh, well, first off, the, the autonomic nervous system doesn't know the difference between chemical, physical, and emotional stresses. It just knows that when you exceed your stress tolerance level, negative things happen. Uh, and the, the body can't, I mean, process and heal. It's in, it, it gets into a stress state, an inflamed state. And, and regardless of whether that comes from a physical stress or chemical stresses. It's like the chemical stresses may be what put you over that stress tolerance level. And and so yeah, yeah, we basically have a stress tolerance level. And then we had our chemical, physical, and emotional stresses. And as long as we stay below that stress tolerance level, our body can recover and heal. And it basically stays in an anabolic state rather than a catabolic state. When you exceed the stress tolerance level, that's when negative things happen. And those negative things show up as muscle weakness. And, and so regardless of the impact, and I, and I can say that because early on in my career, I used to deal with, with clients with um, food sensitivity and food. And, and I'll use the, when I said uh, Kyle Shanahan, I, I don't want to give too much information, but he basically had autoimmune type response to an injury. He had a physical injury that led to these negative effects with digestion and, I mean, irritable, irritable bowel. I mean, it just, I mean, things that you, you wouldn't even expect that to do with muscle function. But what I start finding with my clients is they become less tolerant to when their neuromuscular system stressed, they become less tolerant to chemical and emotional stresses. So people say, oh, I carry all my tension in my neck or when I'm stressed, I, mean, I tighten up my neck or whatever. And it's like, it's a whole, it's a whole system. And, and uh, your body, when your physical system, uh, or when your overall tolerance levels, as you exceed, you got two ways to do things is, okay, I keep exceeding my tolerance levels. And so I'm going to take away the bad foods, what are anti or pro-inflammatory foods. I got I to cut my diet and eat pure. 
and so that I don't do it. But then I don't sleep, and it puts me back up here because this tolerance level is low. Right. So the first thing you want to do with clients is start taking away things. Like let's let's control the physical stresses that you're putting on your body. Let's control the chemical stresses. Let's I mean, make everything anti-inflammatory, if, if you want to say, and uh, reduce the stresses that are placed on your system relative to the tolerance levels that you have. With muscle activation techniques, by improving neuromuscular function, we're raising that stress tolerance level. So now all of a sudden you eat the same food, you have the same mental stress, but you're feeling, and you put it on the physical stresses, but now you're no longer exceeding that stress tolerance level. So positive, and that goes back to anabolic versus catabolic, whether your body can heal and recover or whether it stays in this stress state. And that's, and that's really uh, the goal of MAT is to increase your overall stress tolerance level. Because what, as I'd worked with food allergies and sensitivities and everything, or clients with these, a positive side effect to improving neuromuscular function is we start to see food allergies go away and food sensitivities go away. Mm. And, and it's like, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with improving muscle function? And the goal, really the goal is by when you're raising the tolerance level, the, the stress tolerance level by improving muscular function, and you think about it as a sprained ankle. And you sprain an ankle is like, oh my God, I can't even put any pressure on it. But then after a couple of days, now you can put more pressure on it. Then you can get off your crutches and then you walk, start to walk a little bit. Then you can start jogging and then you can run. That can take, I mean, six weeks to get through that whole process. With muscle activation techniques, we're doing this immediately. I mean, I've had clients come in on crutches with sprained ankles and leave without their crutches because we're raising the physical tolerance levels and we're speeding up that recovery and healing process. And by raising the, the tolerance level of the muscles, it takes more physical stress to create a pain response. And now that's raising that overall threshold um, that, that we're talking about, which now, now that I don't have as much inflammation in my system, I can process foods better. I can handle the mental stress or I had a bad night's sleep. Now your body doesn't have those uh, acute negative responses anytime you do something wrong. It allows you, it gives you a little bit of freedom. And and so, I mean, it's amazing how much over the years, I've been doing this now over 30 years, and it's amazing to me how much the physical system has to do with overall health. And that's, I mean, I, I live and breathe for that reason. Yeah. Muscle-centric living, right? It's like, what what is the muscular system doing to influence your overall well-being? So you talk about threshold, and I'm curious exactly what that means. So is that is that directly you know my my maybe poverty of language is that a direct correlation with contractile ability like end range strength like what is, what is threshold specifically is it the nervous system's ability to send an amplified level of a signal to this muscle directly is that what that really means yeah so when we when we talk about MAT and the foundation principles behind MAT is uh, whenever you have stress trauma or overuse. The resultant inflammation alters the communication between the nervous system and the muscle system. And the best way to say it is like having loose battery cables. The brain sends a message and it's just not getting to the muscles the way it's supposed to. So it's a little bit sluggish. It's like you have a, a dimmer switch. And you think about that if your battery is, I mean, dying on your car, you sit there and turn the key to ignition and it doesn't start. 
Well, muscles are the same. I mean, all it is is electrical impulses. I mean, you got mechanical, chemical, physical. I mean, the uh, electrical, chemical, I mean, mechanical changes that occur in the muscles when you have inflammation. And so it's all one entity. When the tolerance levels get lower, it creates chemical changes. And, and it, it, I mean, it's all tied in together, the, the mechan mechanical, chemical, and, and electrical impulses. And so you think about bad, uh, loose battery on your car, it's the same exact thing. It's, you're trying to start the car and it just won't fire. But when you have stress, trauma, or overuse, the resultant inflammation alters that communication so that the muscles can't fire and they can't fire on demand. Now, as it's playing, it's like that. It's like having loose battery cables. Uh, the brain sends a message and it just doesn't get there. So when the muscle's doing the protective mechanism or when the uh, information doesn't get to the muscles, it's like having loose battery cables. Uh, you, the muscles that can fire on demand will fire on demand. And so what happens with everything you do, the strong get stronger and the weak stay weak. Well, the body senses this. I mean, basically, it's an instability issue. It's the, the slow twitch muscle fibers that are negatively affected by inflammation. And the slow twitch muscle fibers have the lowest threshold to activation. So they need very little electrical impulses to create a muscle contraction. And that occurs beyond our conscious control. Like when you do your knee tap for checking reflexes, you can't even, you can't kick faster. You can't consciously kick back faster than when they tap your leg in and you just get that reflexive contraction. So these slow twitch motor units that are negatively affected by inflammation, I mean, they lose the ability to be able to contract and contract on demand. So it becomes an instability issue where now the muscles can't do their job to stabilize joints and protect you from injury. So when you think about it, like when we walk on ice, the first thing we do when we walk on ice is we tighten up as a protective mechanism. So the end result of this neuromuscular dysfunction or this altered communication is the muscles can't contract, they can't contract on demand, so other muscles tighten up as a protective mechanism the same way they do when you walk on an unstable surface, i.e. like ice, because you have an instability issue that causes protective tightening. Now, in conventional therapy, everyone's focusing on the tightness. Oh, you're tight. That's why you have back pain. That's why you have knee pain. No, it's actually you're weak. You have neuromuscular weaknesses that the body's protecting. And the first sign of these neuromuscular weaknesses are protective tightening. The second sign is if you keep putting forces on these tissues, they shout out in pain because these muscles are actually weaker. They're unstable, but because you're not getting the recruitment of all the motor units, you actually have a weakness component to it also. And you talked about the end ranges of motion and and when a muscle loses the ability to contract efficiently, it loses its ability to fully shorten. So where's the body? So you think if I go into external rotation and my external rot rotators for somehow got overused, I threw baseball pitches to my, my daughter for the weekend and it's like, man, I haven't done that in 10 years and my shoulder's killing me. All of a sudden, I can't, ro I can't get the external rotation in my shoulder. It's not because the internal rotators tightened up. I mean, well, it is because the internal rotators show up as being tight, but they're only showing up as being tight because the external rotators no longer have the ability to fully contract. And when they can't fully contract, they can't fully shorten, which means these opposite muscles stop you from moving into that shortened position. So the general idea is, no, it's a tightness problem with the internal rotators. It's like, no, these muscles are so weak that, that like a tug of war, these muscles can't pull against the antagonist muscle. It isn't that the antagonist muscles are pulling harder than they're supposed to, is they don't have a counter pull from the weak muscles that can't fully shorten. But what a protective mechanism by the nervous system, because that shortened position is the weakest position of the muscle. 
So what a great protective mechanism by the nervous system to say, I'm not going to let you move into that position where you're unstable because you're an injury waiting to happen in that position. So I'm going to stop you from going in that position. Because the more we get back toward neutral from a biomechanical and a neurological standpoint, the more force production and strength um, production we have or strength capabilities we have. It's the extremes of range of motion that was where people are more vulnerable. So just like when we walk on ice, it's every your whole body tightens up and protects you from moving into the extremes of range of motion. I mean, it's a neurological issue, but it is a, a weakness issue. But the weakness is the most extreme in that shortened position. But overall, the force tolerance levels or the force output capabilities of the muscles are going to be weaker throughout its full range of motion. But it's the extreme, fully shortened ranges where, where the weaknesses really show up. This sounds like a, a state becomes a trait. And what that means to me is I, I say I go out and throw baseballs with my daughter. I wake up the next morning, my, I, I lack extra rotation. And if I don't fix that, so that I've created a state, I've created an, an immediate state, I've created a result or a response to this stress. And if I don't do things immediately to correct it, that state, which happened once, repeats itself the next day and repeats itself the next day. And maybe I throw again a week later, repeats itself. And that state that I've created intermittently now becomes a trait that psychologically reinforces itself because you start to realize when I used to go into that range, it used to hurt. So I just, I just basically, I think my brain would go, I'm just not going there anymore. And I think as we age, we start, you know, I call it like the walls closing in around you. And it sounds like that's probably because like, even as you get older, maybe you just think psychologically you can't get into those positions anymore. So you just don't. And then, so we need things like MAT to be able to bring us back or ultimately, you know, the way I would look at it is like, well, you're weak. So let's strength train. Can you differentiate for me why someone would want to use MAT rather than strength training to, to improve the end ranges? And that, that's a, a big factor, especially as we get older and I mean, our body can't tolerate force like it did when we're younger is, I mean, you think about it is, I mean, people don't work out because every time they try and work out, they get injured and it hurts, hurt them. And the reason is, is again, because they're putting forces on their body that the body's not. So I'm going to interrupt you for one sec. You just said something and I, I want to clarify that. You said as we get older, the, we, you know, the body can't tolerate forces as well. Is that, is that an automatic assumption? Or is that something we can, man, you're 60 years old, your body's tolerating forces better than most 25-year-olds. What What's the gap, right? So what, yeah, like, is that, an, uh, we just assume the body can't tolerate forces or because we just beat ourselves up and don't take care of ourselves. And as a result of it, we don't tolerate forces as well as we age. Yeah. And that that's part of, part of the natural aging. And, and does it have to happen? Maybe that, I think that's a question you're saying. No, yeah. it have to happen, but- but you have to have an alternative route or a corrective mechanism that allows you to be able to tolerate forces and continue to progress in your strength levels as you get older. Sarcopenia is the number one factor related to being so, I mean, research, I mean, to death now for as the, the most, I mean, powerful impact on, on aging. And that's basically sarcopenia is, is muscle wasting. The, the muscles, the, the, the emphasizing the emphasis is you need to have do strength training. I mean, how many have you ever seen a muscular marathon runner? I mean, they're not coming in just ripped and jacked. I mean, muscle muscle wise, but because they're not doing anything strength training wise, and so the muscles, even though they have great endurance and your cardiovascular system may be functioning at a high level, the muscles are weak, and so that weakness relative to 
force tolerance level. So if I had a dynamometer and I said, how much force can you tolerate? That's really what what I, I'd be looking at. And I guarantee you take a marathon runner and put him against you. You could say, well, they're, they're so well conditioned, but their force tolerance levels are going to be very low. Well, those force tolerance dictate now all of a sudden you're in a car accident or you're um, or you just go out for a day, uh, play with your daughter playing sports and you start throwing a ball or something. It's like, uh, man, I just tweaked, I just tweaked my shoulder because I can't tolerate the forces that I, that I just put on it. And so relative to aging, as we get older, I mean, we have an accumulation. I always say our body has a history. We have an accumulation of all the stresses that we placed on our body through the years. You sprain ankles, you tweak your knee, you throw a blow your back. Well, your body has a history. And every time you have an injury, you have resultant inflammation. I mean, the inflammation is what causes the pain, but it also causes protective tightening and muscle weakness. And so you think about even somebody that sprains an ankle, they may never get back to full function because they're not sprinting and running and, and doing the things they used to do when they played sports in high school and college. Now they're just going back to work. So their their ankle never gets to the point of where it was force tolerance wise when they were athletic. And so th- this is just one example of one joint that this happens throughout the whole body. Every time you have an injury, that inflammation causes protective tightness and, and weakness. And so somebody's got to be there. When I said life's going to beat you up, Somebody's got to be there to put you together, put you back together from a neuromuscular standpoint. So let's talk about why um, people's estrogen is high, right? You take testosterone, as you mentioned, your body converts from testosterone into uh, estradiol via um, these aromatase enzymes, and that's why these aromatase inhibitors. If your body fat is elevated, your body will convert more testosterone. So first thing you guys need to do if your body, if your estrogen is high, lose some body fat. Second, again. The the, the uh, effect of environmental estrogens, again, I'm not sure that I can draw a correlation there. Can you draw a correlation between xenoestrogens, things that are coming from plastics and pesticides and phthalates, uh, directly influencing estradiol levels you know, in, in blood markers? Or where, where, how is the, what's the correlation there? Because I don't know you can measure it as estrogen. No, 100% we can. I mean, so again, Dr. Keith Nichols, you know, with testosterone resistance syndrome, you remember he, he was talking about that when you met him. Five years ago, it's Swiss, right? Back in yep. 2018, it's crazy, bro. It was five years ago, but like you know, he couldn't get it, the he couldn't get the paper published. Nobody would accept like all the research that he was doing, so he just gave up. And then you know, he started going to the endocrine society their yearly meetings, and he was like talking to all of them, and like none of them would even speak to him. So he's like, Jay, I just gave up. He's like, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to admit it. But yes. The phytoestrogens, you know, the xenoestrogens, all these things in the environment are also sticking, again, to visceral body fat, you know, coagulating, you know, inside the, the rinds of the fat, causing these issues. So you you named it. And, and, and it's also, I think, very important for men to understand that when doctors label them as having high estrogen symptoms or side effects, that is a complete misnomer. What they have is what you just said. They have high visceral body fat and high inflammation and the inflammation and the visceral body fat is what causes the quote-unquote assumed high estrogen symptoms and again let's define what these symptoms are these symptoms are nipple sensitivity mood alteration or imbalance water retention just a feeling of being off and again this is 90 percent of bros in the testosterone using community and i'm not talking about bodybuilders i'm not talking you know that industry way better than me 
But for guys on therapeutic testosterone, if you're 20% body fat or higher, you are going to have high estrogen symptoms. Yep. Because as you just said, you have high levels of inflammation, you have high levels of visceral body fat. And look, here's something else that nobody talks about this. And I did not say this in 2018 because I didn't know. Now I do. If you're a guy with a belly, again, a lot of guys on testosterone have a belly and you're injecting subcutaneously right into that visceral body fat, that's causing cytokine storms. The body is seeing that testosterone, even though it's going to be good for you long-term, as an exogenous element combined with already the fat that you have there, which is already producing cytokine storms, and now it's creating another one. So that's why you have, quote-unquote, more elevated, again- Just specifically because they inject subcutaneously to the fat, or what specifically, Jay? That's literally what it is. It's literally seen as a inflammatory cascade from the testosterone into an already inflammatory cascade. So if the they go into the muscle, they can avoid this? Um, Somewhat. I mean, they're still going to have, quote unquote, high estrogen symptoms if they have too much body fat and inflammation, but absolutely it will not be as pronounced if they do not inject right into the belly. Yes. Yeah. But they're still going to have them. So, I mean, it's not like they're going to go away. And then obviously it also comes down to the physician having awareness of there are no such thing as high estrogen symptoms because, again, and, and 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 very smart doctors have had this conversation with me. They'll say to me, but Jay, if the patient comes and complains that they have all of these side effects, again, what we label as high estrogen symptoms, water retention, mood alteration, imbalance, and then nipple sensitivity, what do I do? And I say, you either lower their dose or you teach them to lose body fat, as you already said. But yeah. writing them a script for a CIRM, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, or an AI is not the solution because right. A, we know what it does long-term to their health span. Yep. So I say my, my first order of business is you need to sweat every day. And that means you need to exercise and, and not, not or, and get in the sauna. And I think those things should go hand in hand. I think people should exercise first and try to get in the sauna right away because it actually increases excretion of, of toxins. Yep. But yeah, so that that's a big one. Like you got to be sweating and people just don't sweat enough, right? Like spend time outside, spend time moving. That's, that's your greatest mechanism of excretion of estrogens. Then you could also look at supplements that bind and excrete estrogens like uh, DIM, sulforaphane, uh, calcium deglucrate in, in combination. Um, but those ones are again, effective. But I think if you're not exercising and obviously putting yourself in a caloric deficit at some level, it's not going to work. Yes. I mean, that that's the best thing that can be said. I mean, the reality is, is like how many bros, I just love saying the word bro, use therapeutic testosterone. Again, these are 40 to 50 to 60 year old guys who just want to be bigger, stronger, have better erections. They know what testosterone gives them who don't do cardio. You know, they go to the gym and they lift, but they don't do cardio. It's like, dude, you got to do cardio. Like, I don't care how muscular you want to be or how much you think it's going to limit your gains, which is not true anyway. True at all. You, you literally have to strengthen the aortic valve. You have to strengthen the, you know, all of the vasculature through here, you know, upper breastplate, because again, that's how you have heart disease or heart conditions or heart events later in life. I mean, think of all the plaque buildup and all the stuff that happens from not doing cardio. So you're right, bro. It's very simple. Do cardio, even if it's just 20 to 30 minutes a day walking on a hill in your neighborhood. You know, what does Stan, our friend Stan Efforting, he does three 10-minute walks a day. I mean, how how easy is that to do? Yep. Every Control time. Time. Control yeah. the time. Yeah, every time you eat. And again, all the guys listening, you're like, hey, I'm busy. Great. Great. You're doing a meeting. You know, you're doing a meeting now and you're walking, right? <laughs> right. Get a walking treadmill. There's treadmills standing at your desk while you're working. They even have those now. 
Yeah. I'll tell you the, ba- the biggest lever that I give a lot of guys is like the morning workout becomes non-negotiable. Yeah. Even if it's 30 minutes. And of course. And your target is you got to hit your peak heart rate. That's, that's my target for my guys every morning. And if it doesn't happen with weight training, it, it happens with cardio. I'm like, that's the target. That's non-negotiable. I need you to hit whatever your max heart rate is at least once. And if you do that, I find metabolically people are more effective throughout the day. Uh, they tend to have a better arousal control throughout the day. They have better, better appetite control throughout the day. It's like start the day with something simple, man. Like get get outside and move. And, and walking is okay, but I often say walking is not enough. Like I need you to, to if you're going to walk, you need to walk like somebody's chasing you. So I love that. And I would even say this is a super hack. This isn't 30 days to shreds. Man, I wish I had the PDF right now that I could just give you and say for everybody that watches this. But uh, so after they lift, after they do their bone build or their resistance training or bone building, you know, workout, dude, jump on a low intensity, not low intensity, but a low impact cardio machine and go to work for 10 to 15 minutes. Because remember, your heart rate is now already 125 to 135 and perhaps even higher, 140 from a good workout from lifting. Now you don't have any warm up. You're just right into zone two or even zone three and do 10 to 15 minutes, three times a week. You know, again, post-training, assuming they're lifting three times a week is amazing. Make a big difference. For accelerating caloric burn and also just maintaining low body fat. Yeah. So I I do that and I like to to put guys on things that are going to drive up lactate. Like I want people to, I need their body to become more effective at, at moving lactate or clearing lactate. So if, if you're someone who can get on a bike and generate a bunch of lactate, then that's what I want you to do. And I want you to do it often because I want that's you to what I become do. better at it. Because if people's resting lactate levels become elevated, they become really that's right, dude. burning fat. Yeah. You're right, man. You're right. That high, high intensity stuff, high, high to mid intensity stuff is, is vital. And, you, and, and the thing is, is like, you know, guys hear that and they're like, oh, bro, man, intervals kill me. But they're already, they're so heart rate's already elevated. Yeah. Yep. Your heart rate's already elevated. You get on there. And you start pumping at like 15 to 16 for like 30 or 40 seconds and do it like six or seven times and, you know, with the opposite amount of time off and then you're done. Yeah. And you don't even feel it. I mean, it's it's nothing like starting right on a bike and then, you know, going in and building up and then hitting intervals. That's much more difficult. But when you're already with the elevated heart rate from the lifting, it's it's pretty easy. You just have to do it. Yeah. And, and the thing, listening to what you're saying, you're right. I was like, oh, it's hard. Yeah. Good. Right. And, and when we start changing our relationship with hard and saying like, hey- I intentionally move toward challenges instead of away from them. This is something I teach my kids, man. I think everyone should teach their kids. Like when something feels hard or when you're afraid of something, sit with it for a second and just acknowledge it. Yes, I'm afraid. Yes, I'm afraid. Yes, it's going to be hard. Good. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you have to train your brain and your body to move toward those things and not away from them. And I think so many of us create the life we don't want by moving away from challenges, right? And that, that includes everything. That includes like, the pursuit of partners, the pursuit of businesses, the pursuit of finances, and like, oh shit, it's hard. I'm going to move away from it. I'm going to go find something that's comfortable for me. And just fucking, everyone just creates this life that they don't want. And like, as soon as you, oh, if that. you do that one hack, like stop, acknowledge your fear. Dude, I get it every day. I'm like, yeah. I, I acknowledge my fear in the situation and I'm going to go and do the best I can. And we have to. That's all you can do. And I love that. I mean, all you really have to do, and this is the same thing that you're saying, just said in a different way, is just instead of labeling something as negative, come from a place of like, how can I learn from this? Yeah. Yep. How how can I learn from this? Like what what this experience has given me the opportunity to either want more of or want less of. And either if it's either one, how do I learn and grow from it? And if we just look at things that are difficult slash hard and get labeled as such as the greatest opportunity for evolution and growth. 
I mean, my God, dude. I mean, we're here as souls to evolve and grow. What's going to make us evolve and grow the most? It's the most difficult, greatest contrast. Totally. Yeah, that's why I say exercises, right? Exercise is your daily battleground to to move toward those things because everyone stops exercise because it starts to hurt. Like, oh, it burns. I'm going to stop. But they don't realize that's fear. Your brain goes, I'm trying to protect totally myself. Do. That's a fear-based response. So if we could say, oh, I, f- I feel my desire to stop. I feel my discomfort. I'm safe. Keep going, right? So if you ever work out with me, one of the things I'll say to all my training partners is like, you're safe. Keep going. You're safe. That's right. Keep going. Because at the end of the day, your brain's going, I need to stop. I need, I'm, I'm not safe. Oh, yeah. No, you're safe. Right. And the closer you closer you can move to that proverbial fire, you're like, yeah, eventually that fire becomes your best friend, right? Eventually that fire, you're like, fuck yeah, this thing is where growth exists, where, where optimization of body and self exists. And I will just say to shout out for you, man, like, yes, I've trained with Ben for two days and I would definitely still say that this guy can teach people to build muscle more better than any person that I know of on planet Earth. And I, and I mean that when I say that. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I yeah, I like what I do. I like. I think it's. Um, I think muscle building is easy. I think muscle building is the easy part. People just need to get through their mind, and uh, sometimes, as you say, controlling the mind is is the gateway. We all have some excuses around what we can and can't do. So clearly, I was I was built to be big, right? I was built to be big. My bone structure is remarkably large, right? So. Doctor Fran, not doctor. Sorry, Francis Hallway came on the podcast and talked about, you know, or actually measured my bones, my bone structure, and he said my bone structure, as far as the thickness of my bones, is as rare as someone who's seven feet tall, uh, just because like the size of my bone structure is just very big. Right, so even now, being retired for seven years, I'm 240 pounds, trying to keep my weight down. Right, if I if I train hard and eat three times a day, I go up to 265 or 270 in three to four weeks. People don't believe that. I'm like, oh, your genetics are amazing. I'm like, no, my genetics are not amazing. Probably to be strong, I would say I have good genetics, but my body's been there. My body wants to be big. My body loves to train and hard. And obviously, my bit my physical capability is very high because I spent 25 years building physical capability. And that's a really big part of what I teach at Muscle Intelligence is, guys, if you want to learn how to play the piano that is your body or the instrument that is your body, it just takes time. You you have to invest in in precision of movement, precision of what you do. So not everyone's built to, to build massive legs. Not everyone's built to build massive amounts of muscle. However, you are built to be the best version of yourself. And so Regardless of what you think you're capable of or what you, what your belief system says you're able to build as far as leg training or as far as back or chest or whatever, you can make the most of what you got. Or you may never be a Mr. Olympia competitor, but you can be an incredible, incredible version of yourself. And that's really what we're after, right? We want to be the best version of ourselves so that we can, you know, be a lighthouse in this world and be like, show show other people what's possible, or at least a love. Uh, walking into gyms and being around people who were just like, just specimens. So I was like, yeah, yes, thank you for showing me what's possible. Right. So many people out there put people down who are jacked and ripped and strong. Like, why? Why do you put them down? Why'd you, why, why are you doing that? Fucking cares what they're doing. Take inspiration from it. And so, Let's put all our excuses behind us and, and our mindset stuff behind us and start walking through some tactics here. So leg training is a joint by joint vertical 
translation of force through the ground, right? So we're trying to, to you know, we had a, this load on our back and we're trying to translate force through the ground, through this bar and, or whatever's on our back and move it. And so there's a lot of stuff between my feet or even potentially the floor because there's something often between my feet and the floor, which is the shoes. And expressing as much vertical force transfer through the ground as I possibly can. Now, mechanically, uh, everyone's different, right? Everyone has different length levers. Everyone has different size joints. Everyone has different length muscles. If you're someone who has long upper legs and short lower legs, squatting, conventional squatting for you is going to be difficult. If you're someone who has long lower legs relative to the upper leg, conventional squatting for you is going to be easy and fun. So people who are the best squatters will almost always have shorter femurs than do long uh, bottom legs. But here's the thing, height doesn't matter. I was squat, squatting with um, Hapthor Bjornsson, one of the strongest men. You guys may know him as the mountain on the Game of Thrones. And he's six foot nine. At the time, he was 400 plus pounds, 440 or some crazy thing. And uh, he squats like a newborn baby because his femurs are shorter than his lower leg. His lower leg is longer. Like his from his knee to the floor, his knee to his, his uh, heel is incredibly long. Makes him a very good squatter. And so he's able to squat with a more vertical spine. He's able to squat, you know, and kind of keep between the center of mass without having to throw his, his hips way back. You know, someone's got long femurs, even if it's short, you got long femurs relative to your leg, you're going to throw your hips way back and you're going to, you're going to often identify as someone doesn't squat well, which is not true. So, uh, you can very easily throw a heel wedge under your heels and change the relative proportion of the lower leg to the upper leg. So there's nothing wrong with putting a heel elevation under your, under your heels. It's just changing the proportion of your lower leg to upper leg. And so regardless, and there's other ways to change the relative proportions as well, right? Changing the width of your stance can change the orientation of your spine a little bit as well, or the orientation of your, yeah, your spine to your upper leg. The way I look at squatting now, and the way I encourage you to look at squatting, or, or you know, squatting as being as a, a metaphor for all leg training, right? Because if you can squat, you can do them all. Um, the goal should be, regardless of where you think you are, what how many back pains, you know, injuries you've had, I think the goal should be, well, I want to be able to squat. If, and again, if you've had like back surgeries or something like that, then that's probably never going to be a good idea. But I think the goal should be, well, when I'm 90, I want to be able to sit on the toilet unassisted. So how do I squat with some degree of a neutral spine and uh, you know enough hip mobility to get into that position, enough knee mobility, ankle mobility to get into that position? And enough spinal control or spinal strength to at least first, uh, above all, resist my body weight and then progress that, right? And so if you think of squatting as a joint by joint exercise, rather than looking at the big picture, look at it joint by joint and go, what's my ankle doing? What are my feet doing? What's my knee doing? What's my hip doing? What's my spine doing? And which of these right now in this moment is my weakest link? And weakest link can look, be looked at in two ways, right? There's a mobility component, also three three ways maybe, and maybe four. There's a mobility component. What can I access? Right? Can I get all the way to, to the to the extremes of the range? And, and like maybe maybe they're different left to right, which is obviously going to cause problems, cause some rotational components. Can I get enough range to even get to the bottom of what will look like a squat? If I can't start there, start improving your mobility. Mobility is not an expression of stretching. Mobility more often is an expression of of strength and, and stability. And the second, so after mobility, we look at stability, which is like positional control. 
And so if I go to the bottom of the squat, can I stay there for an extended period of time? I think we should all set that as a goal for ourselves. Wake up every day and, and sit in, in the base of a squat for five to 10 minutes and teach your muscles to be strong. And don't just sit there passively and let yourself relax like a wet noodle. Like sit into the position and be strong, muscularly, drive your quads, drive your glutes, keep your abdominals tight, breathe deeply down into your diaphragm. Right. And so like all these things I'm saying requires a very high degree of psychological presence, mindfulness, right? Mindfulness. What do you mean by that? What are you saying? Mindfulness. Yeah. Exercise is, is an exercise in mindfulness and mindfulness slash meditation uh, is, you know, exercise in my mind is an exercise in mindfulness just as meditation. So if you're, even if you're somebody who's sitting at home saying, I can't meditate, start, start. And being able to pay attention to what each joint is doing, what each muscle is doing, what your breath is doing, uh, what your what your exertion is doing, what your face is telling you, what your mind is telling you, all of this information, all this sensory information is so important during your training, right? And obviously, if you if you have max weight on your back, you're not thinking about anything other than like, I need to get this thing off my back, right? I need to make sure I get out of this exercise. But on your warm-up sets and, and everything else, there should be a very high degree of of psychological awareness, depth of awareness into how to make this more effective for yourself. Remember, if your goal is building muscle, uh, then you got to be present. You got to think about, I need to make sure that I'm challenging the right muscles. Like in the way we know is like, stop. Say, what do I feel? Right? If I'm at any point in any exercise, I should be able to stop and say, the muscle I'm trying to work is actually the thing contracting. And so sit with that for a minute and, and you know, eccentrically and concentrically is the muscle I'm trying to work working. Right, and so by the end of this podcast, I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about sets and reps and stuff as well. But first, I want to walk you through some of the intangible stuff, some of the stuff that, you know, to be honest, I'm uniquely capable of teaching because all this the science out there is teaching you um, tactics, teaching you sets and reps, and this stuff's very important. But people will never build muscle to the level that they're capable of simply paying attention to sets and reps. Be other people, you know, uh, shit talking the claims that I make. Hey man, we could put 15 pounds of muscle on in six months. Yeah, for sure. You can put 16, 15 pounds of muscle on in six months. But first, you got to lay this foundation. So how committed are you? And listen, it sounds like a long road, but it's not. It's not hard. It depends how committed you are and how disciplined you are with the execution of this stuff. So once we start looking joint by joint, so we look at foot, you know, pronation, supination, we look at ankle, dorsiflexion, we look at knee. Do you have rotation at your knee? Do you have flexion extension at your knee? Do you have enough hip flexion, hip extension, rotation at the at the hip? If you don't have any of those, you're never going to squat well. So start breaking the squat down piece by piece and saying, well, which one do I need to ice to train in isolation? So the way I talk to coaches about this is like, I want I want to look at the the whole integrated system, body, and if I can't do the thing that I want to do, then the only way to logically Correct it is to look piece by piece. Like if you're driving a car and you go, hey man, my car's not working. They don't fix the whole car. They fix the part that's broken. And that's the same thing in your body. And you go, okay, well, which which piece is not working? And how do I make that thing at least one first able to do what I'm asking it to do? And then second, how do I make it a more high performance version of what I want it to do? So guys, regardless of your age and, and your history and your circumstance and your bullshit excuses, you can do it, right? You can do it again. We all have challenges, right? And there may be limitations and sometimes injuries, past injuries definitely cause problems. And I'm right there with you. <laughs> right there with you. I got some bumps and bruises along the way. Almost none of them from training. 
Yeah, so once you start breaking down joint by joint, you say, can I do can I do what I need to do? And that maybe requires a mobility practice and maybe that requires a stability practice. Then we start going, well, do I have the skill to coordinate movement from the bottom to the top and the top to the bottom of this exercise, you know, with control? And that skill is really the sequential coordination of muscle contraction, right? Is, are they contracting the right sequence? An example of that would be on a deadlift. Do you kick up your butt first and then stand up or do, does everything kind of contract at the same time? So obviously one being more effective than the other. They're not right versus wrong. I think so many coaches go, Ben, with how much you know and how much you train, do you look at do you look at people in the gym and just like shake your head? And the answer is no, because everything has degrees of effectiveness, including the way I train, right? Like, including the way I train now. Some people may look at like, oh, why is he doing that? It's because it's what's right for me right now. Um, but it may not be perfect, right? It may not be perfect. I'm just doing the best version of what I can right now. And this is a really important concept, right? It's kind of uh, acknowledging what my body is capable of doing right now and what Tom Purvis would call your current settings. Um, Tom Purvis from RTS will call your current settings. And like, what what is that? What is my body telling me? And, and I need to obey that, right? We want to obey what I call the law of active range of motion. What, what can my body actively control? There's an active range, there's a passive range. And sometimes people don't pay attention to that. I think it's a law. I think if you want to build muscle, you pay attention to your range. Now, I'll give you an example. My knee it has been just a mess for about six months and was getting so much better. I heard it. So I broke my toe, 2010, long story. And then I heard my knee real recently doing some running, which was stupid. Not the running was stupid, but the way that I was doing it was stupid. And I couldn't bend my knee past 20 degrees. And I was like, okay, well, I want to squat. Squatting is my forever goal. And so I couldn't bend my knee past 20 degrees. So what should I do? Should I just squat? No, that would be stupid. I have to stay within what my body is capable of and obey my body and my body will get stronger. My body will say, okay, we're getting, we're good here. We can get stronger, right? So limitations in exercise, limitations in mobility, limitations in strength, and, and ultimately the absence of mobility and flexibility is weakness. It is literally weakness. So if you're, if you're lacking mobility or you're tight it's because you're weak, bottom line, there's no other explanation, right? You don't lack flexibility, you lack strength. So get that around, get your head around that, right? If something is tight, like your hamstrings, it's because your hip flexors are in your quads are weak. There's no other answer. So when you find a position of weakness or a position of tightness, your goal is to move toward it, not move away from it, not even to stretch it. I think stretching it is feels good, but in general, for the most part, a relatively futile uh, endeavor. I love to stretch. I stretch every day, but I don't expect anything of it other than to change my nervous systems uh, sensitivity. I want my muscles to be able to, like, I, I want to be able to mentally go to those positions. It's not a physical thing in most cases. It's mental. Again, I won't get into that, but well, yeah, it's a long conversation to understand the sep- the difference between what your body is experiencing and what your brain is experiencing. So if I feel something as, yeah, there's there's a lot of research on pain signs that like your your knee might be perfectly healed but your brain still senses the pain there because it's used to the pain being there. But the knee itself is completely healed. So you have to train yourself to overcome the trepidation, psychological trepidation. So once we figured out this joint by joint capability, physical ability, joint by joint, then we can start going, okay, well, let's let's load this thing because now I can control my body weight, right? That's ground zero. Ground zero for, for physical capability and leg training is like, I got to control my body weight. And guys, just because you can move into emotion doesn't mean you control emotion. So start by saying, okay, could I go 
in one inch increments in both directions. Start there. And and that could look like a squat, that could look like a lunge, that could look like a leg extension, that could look like a, a leg curl. But like, can I like get all these muscles doing it? It could be a, a hip flexor exercise. Uh, and then, but I want to say, can I control every inch of every rep? And, and it's not easy. And this is why I took up yoga, right? Yoga for me is not a, an exercise in stretching. Yoga for me is an exercise in calming my mind when it wants to be racing, calming my mind when it wants to be chaotic, calming my mind when uh, my brain wants to be tight. And uh, you put yourself in really uncomfortable positions that are you know, atypical and saying, hey, man, calm down. Okay. So once you've figured out this joint by joint execution, then we start going, okay, I'm going to put some weight on this. And, and remember that stability is different with zero weight, you know, body weight plus zero, uh, than it is with body weight plus 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds, and so is skill. Those things have to be earned. The ability to put 10 additional 10 pounds on your body has to be earned, meaning just because you have perfect squat form or perfect any form with zero weight, you know, body weight plus zero, doesn't mean it's still going to be there when you put body weight plus 10, 20, 30, 40 pounds. It, it has to be earned. So every single attempt at a progression weight should be passing through the, the lens of, am I doing it really, really well? Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.